turn to 1 Timothy. Friends, we continue our study of the uh, first letter of Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy, at 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 down to the end of verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 down to the end of verse 7. Beloved, I have entitled this morning's sermon, Called to Be an Overseer. Called to Be an Overseer. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Beloved, let us read God's word together. The word of God says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Friends, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we pray. Be with us now as we study your word. Lord, send your spirit, we pray. Lead us into all truth. Help us to see Christ first and foremost as the bishop and overseer of our souls, the faithful shepherd of the sheep. And, O Lord, we pray as we see his glory. Help us to see those whom you have raised up to be overseers, pastors, and elders in your church. We pray for them, and we pray for this time together. Blessed we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, last week we looked at Paul's concern for order, godly order and structure within the church of God. We saw how Paul uh, roots some of this in created order. How last week Paul in Chapter 2 tells us that the office of the overseer, the office of the pastorate, is to be for men alone. And remember, he grounds this in creation. He grounds this in the headship that God gave to Adam over Eve. And we we saw how this is to be reflected in the church, how the church is to reflect not only created order, but also to, in its own structure, to reflect God's purposes of redemption. In Christ Jesus. And so it is looking at church government that here in chapter 3 we turn to the office of the overseer. Now, in beginning in verse 1, we see that Paul is quoting a saying that seems to be popular within the church. Uh, and this is something within the believing community, and particularly among that church in Ephesus. He says, This is worthy of an affirmation. So we have an apostolic affirmation or endorsement of this saying. The saying is this, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul says, first and foremost, this office of the overseer is a noble vocation. It is a high and holy calling. It's not something to be denigrated. It's not something to be Poo-pooed, it is something that the church of God is to recognize as worthy of nobility, of virtue, uh, something to be celebrated, something to be 
uh, treasure. So what is this office of overseeing? Well, friends, that word in the Greek for overseer uh, is episkopos, and it comes over into the English language with words like episcopal. Now, you know about the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church is named the Episcopal Church because that word is speaking of bishops. It means rule by bishops. In the Episcopal structure, you have, uh, you have a order of bishops. We see this most clearly in the Roman Catholic Church. Think of the Roman Church for a moment. The Roman Church has priests. The Roman Church has uh, uh, bishops, and it has archbishops, and then it has a college of cardinals, and at the very top of this pyramid is the Pope himself. And so this is an Episcopal structure, a hierarchy of bishops. Now, friends, again, that's not exactly what Paul has in mind. He is not advocating for a, a structure of clergy where there are one office of elders, and then there's a super office of bishops. That's not what Paul is arguing here. He is arguing that the, there is one office, the office of the pastorate, which is described as a, one of elders and one of overseers, right? So this is another term for the same office. So that idea is one of oversight. Uh, Jesus says it this way. For example, when Peter comes and up to him and Jesus says, but who is the wise and faithful manager whom the Lord sets over his house to give to the household their food at the proper time? The office of the overseer is one of the steward, one of the manager who exercises oversight or governance of the church. So what Paul has in view here is one office, the office of the elder, which is also called the pastorate. And here we see Overseer. Now, in your Bibles, if you have a different translation, you might see the word bishop here. But as I said, this is not a super office. He's speaking of one and the same. So overseer, pastor, elder, three portraits of the same singular office. But again, when we call the pastor an overseer, it means that he has a charge to look over, to govern, to care, like the general who goes through the camp and makes sure that the soldiers have what they need, they have the provisions they need, that the camp is in order. He's the one that has been tasked with the authority to make sure the troops are ready for battle. So too we see that there is a degree of stewardship of oversight that is given to the pastorate. So there is a biblical Christ-given office for the church. So, friends, in Christ's church, we have two ordained offices, the deacon and the elder. Now, we may have other positions that we create, such as a stewardship chair or Sunday school uh, teachers and things like that. But, friends, remember, there are only two ordained offices, the elder and the deacon. And what we see here is that the elder is charged with caring particularly for the souls of men for the souls of those who have been entrusted to him by God, the Holy Spirit. And because of this, we are to regard it as a noble task, if anyone aspires to that. So friends, what this means is we ought to um, keep this calling as something noble. We ought to encourage young men and others as they are seeking the Lord's calling on their life. And, and friends, it's a good thing when one is desiring to be a pastor. Now in verse 2, 
we see the qualifications. Verse 2, now we see the overseer must be above reproach. Now, friends, remember, again, overseer and elder and pastor, they're interchangeable, right? One office, and it's not just a single, but remember, in the case of Paul, there's a plurality, there's a body of elders in Ephesus. So wherever the apostles went, here's what they did. They would preach the gospel, God the Holy Spirit would save, Christ then would give gifts to his church. He would raise up a body of deacons and a body of elders. And so, friends, we see that this is the apostolic biblical model. And so we see that Paul, wherever he goes, he appoints multiple elders to teach and to govern in the church. Therefore, an overseer, Paul says, first and foremost, don't look at their talent, look at their character. What's more important in the office of the pastorate is not their great ability, but are they more and more being conformed to the likeness of Christ? Christ-like character is the essential prerequisite for the office of the elder. Must be above reproach. Now, friend, there is only one person who has been completely irreproachable. You know what that word reproach means? It means to censor. It means to, uh, to rebuke. It means to call out something in one's life that is incongruent with the word of God, with the truth of God, with the gospel of his grace. In one sense, friends, not a single elder, not a single pastor you ever meet is above reproach. In the ultimate sense. Because every one of us is a sinner, an Adam, redeemed by grace, being sanctified, yes, but still with remaining corruption within us. Christ, Jesus, is the only one who is completely above reproach. But friends, what we see is that a candidate for the office of elder, one whom the church may be recognizing as a pastor or overseer, their character, is to be more and more conformed to the likeness of Christ, such that they can be an example. So what Paul is saying is, the pastor is not to be perfect, because you'll never find a perfect pastor. The elder is to be an example, in his own character, in his own way of life, because Christ-like character is the essential, foundational prerequisite for being called by God to be an elder in his church. So, friends, Christ-like character, above reproach. Now, friends, again, the model is this. Paul would look at the church, the elders and others, and he would say, follow me as I follow Christ. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 5 that as overseers, elders are to be an example to the flock. So it's an example to imitate rather than a perfect person. But that's a high standard still. And we see what this Christ-like character looks like. So Christ-like character that is essential for the pastorate to be an elder is seen first that he is the husband of one wife. Now, friends, there has been a, a river of ink spilled on this one phrase. What does it mean? Mean. Well, friends, in the Greek, it's very simple. 
this candidate must be a one-woman man. One-woman man. And in its most strict, most clear interpretation means if he's married, because remember, you don't have to be married to be an elder. Paul wasn't married, and he was certainly an elder. We have no indication that Timothy and Titus were married, and they were still elders. So we're not saying marriage is a necessary prerequisite to be an elder. But if you are married, if this man is married, is he faithful to his wife? He's not a polygamist, doesn't have a second wife somewhere in Jersey, and he's faithful to her. That's the sense, friends. If he's married, how does he treat his wife? Does he love her? Does he shepherd her? Is he faithful to her? Because it's incongruent with the gospel for this elder to be running around, for him to be having an affair. Friends, Paul says, when you look and examine a candidate for the ministry, look at his relationship with his spouse. Is he faithful to his wife? Now, friends, many people have looked at this and they've tried to construe it to mean that if one were divorced, then that would be a knockout, right? And most people would say, well, you know, divorce means that you're not a one-man woman. You know, you're not a man of one woman anymore because there's an, an ex-wife in the picture. But friends, again, I want to remind you that what Paul is saying is look at the man as he stands before you now. Look at the man in his present character because he's going to continue to delineate a whole bunch of character traits, right? Christ-like character traits. And what Paul is saying is you look at the man as he stands before you today. Is he married? Okay. Is he faithful to his wife? Yes. Good. Is their marriage something to be, something to rejoice in and to give God the glory for? Wonderful. And there is no consideration of the past. Right? So divorce does not automatically keep a man from the ministry. Now, that would be something to consider in his examination. But friends, it stretches scripture to add that which is man's tradition to what is the word of God. So, friends, the husband of one wife, he's a one woman man. He's faithful to his wife. Again, friends, because if we, if we get really crazy on it, we could get to the point, well, one woman man means he's got to be married, right? We would have to say if you're a bachelor or if you're a widower, you can't be an elder because you're not a one woman man. You're not united to one woman. And friends, that's on the face of it absurd. Again, present character, present condition. How does the man standing before you, how is he living how is he conducting himself? Is he being faithful to his wife? Presently, secondly, is he sober-minded? In a sense there, is he clear-headed? Is he one that's not ruled by his passions and emotions? One that is not quick to lose his temper and fly off the handle? Is he, does he have that sobriety of thought? Does he recognize his own limitations? Does he recognize his own... Abilities, right? It's, it's necessary for the elder to have a sober self-assessment. Is he able to see that this is what the Lord has called him to? These are the gifts that he's given to him. 
is he clear-headed, self-controlled? Again, another fruit of the Spirit, that he is able to control his emotions, control his passions and influence and his impulses, respectable, hospitable. Again, friends, Paul is saying this is what Christ-like character looks like. This is what God the Holy Spirit is forming within his people, and it should be evident in one who is being considered as a elder in the church. Respectable. Is, is he living his life in such a way that is worthy of respect? For example, when you, when you have an elder before you and let's say he has another job. Is the way that he conducts himself in his profession something to be admired? Uh, is it the way that he lives himself? Is that something worth emulating? Is he known around town as the, as the guy that likes to cheat everybody and, and get away with what he can? Or is he known as the one who goes the second mile? Whose word is his bond? Who would rather lose a deal than forfeit his integrity? Is he respectable? Again, friends, Christ-like character. The Spirit of God sanctifying and reforming and recreating the character of this man who is being called by God to the office of the elder. Hospitable, this is a unique one. In the Greek, it, it means the lover of the alien, the lover of the foreigner, one that really loves people that are outside. You know, because friends, it's easy to love those who you're close to, that are familiar to you. It's easy to love our family, most of the time. It's easy to love our friends. But it's often very hard to love, to care, to show concern, and to seek to minister to the well-being of people that are vastly different from us. So friends, one mark of a man being transformed by the grace of God, being sanctified by His Spirit, being prepared for the ministry is that he's willing to be hospitable. He, you know, the hospital is the place you go when you're sick. Because it's a place of rest and well-being. It's a, it's a refuge in a world of chaos and destruction and, and evil. Friends, is the home of the elder a place of refuge? Is, is it a place you like to go to? Being in his presence, is it, is, it, is it comforting because you are sensing something of the love and the mercy of Christ as he is ministering to his flock in and through this man? Hospitable, able to teach. Now, friends, on every character qualification for the elder is exactly the same for the deacon. The only exception for the elder is that the elder must be able to teach. One mark, one indication that God is raising up an elder or another pastor within the church is that there is an indication of a desire to teach the Word of God and a certain ability, a skill in that. Now, friends, everybody teaches differently. I teach different than other pastors, other Bible teachers. But are we handling the Word in a respectable, God-honoring, God-reverent manner? Is there a joy that you see in this man as he's pouring over the Scriptures and enjoying to share what God is showing him with the church of God? Friends, the elder candidate, the elder, the overseer that God is raising up, he will love the Word of God. Absolutely devour it. 
And it will be his joy and delight to share it with others, with God's people in particular. Friends, you know, that, that's how Christ is training his shepherds and, and, and edifying his church. He gives to the elder a desire to learn his word. And as the elder is led by the Spirit to study the word of God and to prepare to teach, then he feeds the flock of God. And, and by that word, the Spirit stirs up the desires, the joy and zeal of God's church to pursue him. And so, friends, this is a necessary qualification for the office of the pastor. Is he able to teach? Now we have a couple of negatives, a couple of things that are warning signs for an elder candidate. And he's not a drunkard, and he's not violent. Now, friends, we see a little bit later on that Paul says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, I know that you've got problems with your stomach, and the water's not so good in Ephesus. And so my counsel to you is that with you know, when you're having your when you're having your water in the evening, make sure, you know, add a little wine with it. It's okay, Timothy, that you might have a little wine uh, even as a pastorate. So, friends, the consumption of alcohol is not what Paul has in view here. That does not you know, mean that one is not a Christian or one can't be an elder. If that were the case, friends, then Jesus Christ couldn't be couldn't be an elder in his own church. But what is being looked at here is drunkenness being overcome, overpowered by that, and losing all self-control. Does that characterize his life? And is he, is he violent? Well, friends, no, he's not called to be violent. He must be gentle, because Christ is gentle with his sheep. Now, friends, this is another point. The pastor, the elder that Christ calls and raises up, is to have the same gentle concern for Christ's church as Jesus does. The one who picks up his lambs and carries them in his arms. Friends, it is very easy that with authority there can come domineering. Sometimes, friends, when authority is invested, it's easy to throw that weight around. And Paul is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he says... That is not to be so in the church of God. The pastor is not to be domineering and demanding. He's not to be a dictator in the church of God, but rather he is to be an example of gentleness, an example of humility, an example of service, friends. Speaking from my own uh, perspective and experience, friends, there's nothing beneath a pastor to do. It's not beneath my dignity to clean a toilet. It's not beneath my dignity to change a marquee. It's not beneath my dignity to do any and everything. My Lord Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He bled and died upon a Roman cross. He suffered gravely at the hands of men. Friends, there's nothing beneath the dignity of a pastor to do. Because we are serving as an example to the flock of what Christ has done for his church. And in that way, friends, we demonstrate what it means to be gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Friends, the elder, the pastor, when you're examining a candidate for it, Paul says, is he one that seeks for peace? Or is he one that loves to stir up controversy? Friends, we know that there are people like that. We know that there are people that love to keep the pot stirring. 
and they love to keep the gossip chain going. But Christ has called his elders not to be that way, to be ones that seek for peace, ones who seek for unity, a unity in the truth, a unity in the Lord Jesus. Is he content with what the Lord provides? Not a lover of money. Friends, because we see that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because if one is a lover of money, friends, that will be an easy way to compromise all kinds of virtues. To steal, to, uh, to, to, you know, to try to you know, make an idol of that wealth. But friends, that is not to be for the elder. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, we see that not only is care to be taken to examine the pastor as he stands before you today, right? His past is in the past. It's covered by the blood. It's been covered by Christ and been crucified as a man stands before you today. Do you see this Christ-like character emerging in his life? Is he an example to the flock in that? If so, the next step is then to look at his home life. Because sometimes, friends, we have people who are one thing in public and another thing in private. And Paul says, take the time, dear church, when you're examining a pastor, when you are looking at him to see whether Christ is calling him, whether the Spirit is equipping him, how does he care for his family? Not only is he faithful to his wife and not running around, but does he manage his household well? Because, friends, our households are the training ground. Our households are the training ground for stewardship. As a husband, as a father, we have already been entrusted with all manner of responsibilities. Responsibilities to care for our wives and our children, to raise them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, to pour the Word of God into them, to be an example to our wives and our children of what it means to pursue and follow Christ. And so Paul says the natural proving ground, the natural trial run, as it were, to see whether such a man is called by God is to see how he governs his own house. Not as a dictator, not as a tyrant, but with that same Christ-like character, with gentleness, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, now again, friends, this is one of those that kind of we kind of scratch our heads. What does he mean? Well, friends, what Paul is meaning is that the elder understands that his children are under his authority. Because they're growing up, friends. He's responsible for them. He's not neglecting his duty, letting them run hither and thither and 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 being, you know, the the destructive kids in the neighborhood. But he is saying, I want care for my children. I want to watch over them. The children recognize the authority of their father and they are rejoicing in that. Uh, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? That's a rhetorical question. He can't. The home is the first proving ground for the elder. The family is the trial run. This is where you begin to see whether the Lord has given to this man Christ-like character. How does he love his wife? How does he care for his children? Now, friends, kids, um, kids do misbehave. Pastors' kids just misbehave. Elders' children misbehave. We don't hold them to another standard. But, friends, what we're looking at is we're saying, does the elder, does the pastor truly love and discipline his children? 
can, can we see how he's continuing to lead them to see the glory of God and their need for Christ the Redeemer? Is he being faithful to continue to show and to demonstrate to his children what God requires, what God is asking? Do we see that godly leadership in the home? So we take a look at the home life. In verse 6, we do pay attention to how long he's been a Christian. Has the elder recently been converted? Paul says, that might be a warning sign. Paul says, let him have some time to season, verse 6. So Paul says, a candidate as an elder, he needs time. He needs time to sit under the word of God. Again, friends, he might be a wonderful Bible teacher. This elder might be eloquent like Apollos, eloquent in the scriptures, able to rightly handle and divide the word of God. The Lord might have given him great ability, but he still needs time to learn. He needs time to learn how to shepherd the flock of God. He needs time to sit under the ministry of the word of God. He needs time to be in community together and to serve the Lord with his church. And so Paul is saying, again, it's very tempting for us as the church to look at men with great abilities and say, well, the character stuff, ah, that's not quite as important. Paul says, no, 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 no. Character first. Is he following Christ? If he's got a lot of potential, that's great, Paul says. Just give him time to season, because if we don't, he might fall into the condemnation of the devil, which is pride. If we give to him the office, he might be puffed up, and he might think, well, I have arrived at a, at a higher plane of Christian living. I've only been a Christian for a year or two, but look, now I'm superseding all these saints of 30 and 40 years. I must be someone very special, friends. And so, with the honor, with the nobility of the calling to be a pastor, there's also the warning that that could go to his head. So Paul says, give the man time for testing, for training. Now, friends, in our own context, we have plenty of grounds where I believe that our elders have already been proven and tested. Now, in our structure as a church, we have a single elder, me. But I do believe that the Lord has gifted and called other men and has even now revealed that uh, to his congregation. I, I, I do believe that there are several men that the Lord has raised up and we can see that they too have had time of seasoning. They've been, it's been demonstrated in the way that they handle the word of God and the way that they love and serve their wives and care for their families and and serve in their jobs, this, I believe the Lord has already made apparent. And so, friends, at this moment, any of those candidates that we would have for the office of elder, they're not recent converts. They have been walking with the Lord for many years. Verse 7, Paul tells us that you also need to take care to gauge what the scuttlebutt is. What, what, does the, what does the community, what do outsiders have to say about this man that we're considering? Because again, friends, just like sometimes we could be one person in public and another at home, sometimes, friends, we can be in a bubble 
And we don't see what somebody else is like outside of the church context. So we might want to investigate. You know, we might want to say, well, how, how does this man interact with the guys at the gym? Is he kind to them? Or is he a jerk? When he goes to the restaurant, right? Does he denigrate the waitress? Does he say all these nasty and horrible things to them? Because that would be an example of something incongruous, something that was not in keeping with the gospel of God or the word of his grace. So does this candidate, does this elder, is he well thought of even by outsiders? Do they look at him and they go, well, you know, so-and-so, he's a Christian and he's a, you know, he's a pretty devoted one. And I'm not, you know, I, I, I can't go all the way he goes. But, you know, if I need something done at work, he's the one I call. When, when there's a job that needs to be done, I know he's going to do it. I can trust that this man is faithful. Does he have a good reputation even with unbelievers? even with those that are outside the local church where he's being considered and where he's being appointed. So friends, those are just some criteria. Those are some ways that Paul is saying Christ gave gifts to his church. He has entrusted elders to his people. And they will be revealed by God the Holy Spirit. And when they are revealed, when you have a candidate before you, these are some of the things that you want to look at. Their doctrine, their devotion, their faith, their practice, how they are at home, how they are at work, how they love and lead their families. And in that way, friends, we see that the Lord, as the church, affirms what God has already done. Again, friends, the church receives these pastors as gifts of God. It's not the church creating them or investing them with authority. It's Christ who's called. It's the Holy Spirit who's enabled. And he leads us to recognize and to rejoice, to take what is de jure and make de facto, to take what is already there and to say, Lord, you have given we rejoice in that. So friends, as we close uh, in just a little bit, I want to I take just a little bit of a, a practical note. Um, like I said, I, I believe that the, the Bible clearly teaches a plurality of elders. That that was the design of the Lord from the beginning. And I believe that it leads to the health of the local church. Because what it does is it helps the church to distinguish between the office of the elder and the office of the deacon. Both ordained offices. But I think that it helps the church of God recognize the gifts that God has given to his people. So, friends, uh, my prayer for you is that as you in the days and weeks and months ahead are meditating on this subject of church government and you're thinking through how... Can we, as a church, be in conformity to the Word of God? I pray that you will meditate with me and see what overseers, what elders the Lord has already provided to us. I think in many cases, our Sunday school teachers, some of our men's Sunday school teachers, already serve in that capacity. Uh, and so what we would do is we would take what is de jure and make de facto what is 
already in practice and simply call it by what it is. But friends, again, church government is meant to show us more of Christ and His glory and grace. Because it is the aim of Christ, the overseer, that His church be built up, that His church be edified in the truth, that the church grow in love and grace and holiness. So friends, that's first and foremost to us. And So friend, I pray that today, as we've been thinking about church government, that you yourself are hoping in Christ, this bishop and overseer of your soul. Uh, because friends, you know, no amount of, of right church government can, can save or bring health to a church apart from the Word of God. Right? So what's first and foremost is the gospel. What's first and foremost is the truth. And I pray that today uh, you are resting in this Lord Jesus uh, who provides such overseers, elders, and pastors for his church. I, pray, I ask that you pray for me, uh, that the Lord would continue to shape and mold me, uh, that I might be faithful in this charge and calling that Christ has entrusted to me. Uh, and my prayer is that uh, the Lord would continue to use me and, Lord willing, the other elders uh, for the blessing of this, his church. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see his sovereign rule over the church and over our own lives. Father, we come and we submit to you. Lord, we pray, please forgive us of our sins. Please help us to understand the truth therein. Lord, we pray that in these weeks and months ahead, as we are digesting and working through these things, that, Lord, you would help us as a church to come to a common consensus in the truth. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to walk in love and gentleness with one another. And, Father, we pray that at Jenny Lind, Lord, uh, your word might be proclaimed, that, Lord Jesus, the gospel of your grace might be uh, declared with all of its beauty. And, Lord Jesus, we pray that your church might be built up in holiness and love and faithfulness. And, Father, we ask that it all be to your glory. Father, have mercy on your church. Have mercy on the pastor and the elders that you've given to us. Father, this we ask in Jesus' name.